Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Candace Keener. And Candace and I are going to be talking about one of our favorite historical homes today. Um, it reminded me a lot of the Hearst Castle episode recorded about a year ago. It's really fun to talk about these amazing palaces, I think. And even interesting homes that have intriguing stories behind them, like when we did an, an old vintage podcast about the Winchester Mystery House. Sometimes it's the people behind the home that make for the great story. Yeah, and if you've been there and seen some of the rooms they lived in, it really adds a lot to, I don't know, to your understanding of them. So the house we'll be talking about today is Biltmore Estate, which is nestled in the mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. And if you've never been, you really have to go to understand why it is so proudly and majestically referred to as America's largest home. Trademark. Trademark. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it is an amazing place. It's got four acres of floor space. It has 250 rooms. That's 34 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms. Don't try to use any of those. No, don't. And I think people try to get a peek at the bathrooms. You can't really see them, though. They have a mirror set up, mm-hmm. so you can get just the tiniest reflection of one. It also has 65 fireplaces. And it was one of the first homes built that had electricity and underfloor heating, plus elevators. And the basement level is so fascinating. It's got an indoor bowling alley, pool, gymnasium, locker room slash changing areas. And that's also where the kitchen and the servants' quarters are, too. Even changing areas, that does not sound like it would be particularly interesting. But we're talking about 20 male changing rooms, 20 female changing rooms. Every, That's a guess. Yeah, everything about this house is opulent in every way. So, okay, but to understand the house, we have to understand the family that built it and understand their whole history, which is quite a long one. And this is, of course, the illustrious Vanderbilt family, which originally, they came from Holland. They're the Vanderbilts. Like, I I just think that's a great... They should have stuck with that, I think. Oh, I agree. <laughs> Vanderbilt University would have been so much more exciting. <laughs> I think so. So they came to America from Holland in the late 1600s. But for a really long time, for many generations, they were just this successful but modestly living farming family. You know, not, not the ostentatious um, family that they eventually became. It wasn't until Cornelius Vanderbilt, who's better known as Commodore Vanderbilt, that the family really rose to great heights. And he built his fortune in steamships and railroads and had 13 children with his wife. So when he died in 1877, he had a fortune of $100 million, which, I mean, that's for the time. Quite considerable, That's a considerable today. Fortune. Um, and so w- when he died, he left the majority of that fortune to his eldest son, William Henry. He kind of considered some of his younger sons wastrels, and he thought that William Henry would be the only one who could carry on the family business. And he did very successfully. He continued to build upon the family fortune. And while William Henry was active on the business scene, his wife was working the social angle because the Vanderbilts were still considered new money. So she was helping to build the family prestige. Yeah, a lot of the old money in New York society was continuing to snub the Vanderbilts. If you've ever read 
the age of innocence, you have a pretty good sense of of how this would go down. So the Vanderbilts commissioned this amazing mansion on Fifth Avenue. It's going to have 59 rooms. It was built in 1881, and it could hold their huge art collection. And during this time, Vanderbilt children, all sorts of cousins, are building these amazing mansions in Rhode Island, in New York. It's really... Uh, it's building time for this family. To Is it Vander building time? <laughs> yes, I think so. They're definitely cementing their place in society. Um, at the time, this Fifth Avenue house seems pretty grotesque to some people. Louis H. Sullivan called it a contradiction, an absurdity, a characteristically New York absurdity. But it set a certain style, and it caught on with the rest of society. Suddenly, the Vanderbilts were in now, and... During this time, during the construction of this mansion, we have George Washington Vanderbilt growing up. He was the youngest child of eight, William Henry's children, and he was born in 1862, and he was the only kid who was still living at home when the Fifth Avenue Palace was completed. So, I mean, he he grew up with construction. He grew up with palaces and opulence. Uh, I think it definitely affected his later life, as we will see. And even though young George was doted upon by his parents, he was definitely a family favorite. He was very much unlike his brothers, who were more invested in the family business. George was interested in books. He started collecting them when he was a boy. And when he was 12 years old, actually, he started noting all the titles of the books that he'd read. And when he died, he had noted more than 3,159 entries of books. And Sarah did the math, and that averages out to... 81 books a year. He died at only 51. So, I mean, I can't even imagine how many books he would have read if he had lived another 20, 30 years. And you may be thinking that's an awful lot of time for reading, but he was the original man of leisure. He had nothing to do but invest himself in his studies. He learned all kinds of foreign languages, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Latin, ancient Greek, modern Greek, Hebrew, Sanskrit, and even later, some different Native American languages. Yeah, and he studied art. He read a lot of philosophy. He was very interested in traveling. I mean, of course, all the Vanderbilts are visiting Europe, but he would tour Asia and Africa as well. And he used these travels to, of course, collect art and interesting pieces for his Fifth Avenue home, but also a lot of books. He ends up with a library of 23,000 volumes. So, I mean, this is a very learned man. He's not formally educated, but he's privately tutored and obviously spends all of his free time reading. He's, he's intelligent and he knows that He's going to be taken care of for the rest of his life, even though he does have a considerably smaller share in the family fortune than his elder brothers. But he's going to be all right. He's set. (laughs) He's set. And when he comes of a certain age, he realizes that he needs his own mansion to call his own. When he's traveling to North Carolina, he saw Asheville and had a, a winter resort reputation. So he went there to scope it out. And he realizes that this is where he wants to build his mansion. And it seems like a bit of an odd choice, the mountains of North Carolina, when most of his family is situated in in cities further north. Yeah, and Rhode Island is their country spot, sort of. (laughs) But he realizes that he can buy tons of land and build an empire for himself. Yeah. So in the 1880s, he starts his buying spree. 
Yeah, and this is a strange little fact, and I couldn't find it online, but I remember it from some of the literature at the house itself. But apparently, once local landowners got wind of a Vanderbilt coming around buying up land, they started holding out for a little bit more. So they'd have sort of a broken down barn or farmhouse and a few acres surrounding it. And they would hold out. Until for Vanderbilt <laughs> came along and paid a pretty penny for yeah, it. Yeah, because very smart. He didn't want this old farm in An the middle of the No. But by 1889, he was ready to start construction on the house. And he didn't just hire any old architect to do it. He hired Richard Morris Hunt, who by this point had a famous reputation for building these mansions for these elite New York families. He had also built the New York Tribune building, which at one point was the tallest building in the world. So, you know, this is a top-notch architect to hire for your estate. After six years of construction, Vanderbilt decides that the home is ready to be opened. Officially opened. Officially open in its current condition. But it's never really finished, and we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. But you can see that money eventually just ran out. There are rooms that are undone. There were rooms that were conceptualized but never completed. Uh, one of the, the biggest features of the house, the grand organ, is actually artificial. Fake because pipes. Fake pipes. He didn't have the money to buy real pipes. And um, you can still see an unfinished room at the house today to give you an idea of what the house would have been like. So it was uh, kind of like one of those beautiful Fabergé eggs. It's gorgeous and ornate on the outside. But maybe on the inside you open it and it's... Hollow spots. Hollow spots, right. Yeah. But, I mean, in 1895, people didn't know that yet. It seemed likely to be completed. Yeah. And it was amazing and opulent. And he named it Biltmore from Bilt, which was the ancestral home of the Vanderbilts. And uh, more comes from the word like for rolling uplands. So it's a nice estate name. He's got all this land. And because it's so remote at the time, the construction of it is pretty unbelievable. I mean, they have to build a three-mile railroad spur just to get all of the supplies there, all that Indiana limestone. They have to build a brickworks on site. Um, So it's its own little city. And actually, there is a city attached to it. Right. He always envisioned the chateau as an operating, working estate. And the dairy on the Biltmore grounds became largely successful. And that was what was the, no pun intended, cash cow for several years <laughs> for the family. Yeah. So should we talk about the estate a little bit? I mean, to get a real picture of it, you you do need to go there or at least go online. There's a virtual tour. You can sort of walk through these rooms. But I mean, what what's your favorite part of it, Candace? I would have to say the basement level. It's so fascinating to me. And that didn't open until the 1980s. But down there, you can see the kitchen and uh, the pantry. And that's always so fascinating to me. I like seeing how people cooked in the olden days. Uh, and the swimming the swimming pool is really fascinating to see. There's no water in it. So you can see all of the 
inlaid tile and the dramatic slope from the shallow end to the deep end. And down there also is the Halloween room, which I always thought was so cute because Cornelia and her friends had uh, transformed it one Halloween evening with these whimsical drawings on the walls. And I thought that was adorable, uh, thinking that they were very young children. <laughs> and then come to find out, I think they were in their late 20s or so when she did this. So Probably a champagne-fueled party. I think I so. <laughs> How nice to be the, the only child of, of George Vanderbilt. Yeah. I really like the tapestry room upstairs, which is hung with all of these beautiful Flemish tapestries. And I think at Christmas, they actually set out Christmas trees, just every, oh my in front goodness. of every tapestry. It's unbelievable. Christmas at Biltmore is, it, you just have to experience it. But as impressive as the house is, I think the most amazing thing about visiting is when you look outside and you can't see anything but mountains, amazingly manicured ground surrounding you, forest. You, I mean, you can't even see like a watch tower, a fire watch tower off in the distance or something. You feel like you're in a completely different time. And that was a very important aspect of this manor estate for Vanderbilt. He wanted it to be his own private kingdom almost. And so he hired the number one landscape designer in the country at the time, Frederick Law Olmsted, to make sure that he got the effect he wanted. And if you've heard that name, it's because Olmsted had a huge reputation at the time. He had designed Central Park. He'd worked on Prospect Park, Fairmont Park, Belle Isle Park, and even the Capitol Grounds in D.C. And he also contributed to turning Yosemite into a public park. Yeah, and he was an old Vanderbilt friend, too. So it's not too surprising that he got called to this job. They were neighbors from Staten Island. Uh, so he's brought in pretty early, before the construction even starts, in 1888, to consult and decide the master plan for this estate. And he tells George that he thinks the house should have nice formal gardens surrounding it that fit with the style, farms in the bottomlands by the river, so it could you know, really function as a self-sustaining estate. Exactly. And then forest. And there are nearly 125,000 acres of forest at at this point, at least. And a lot of it was cut over. So it's not pristine and beautiful. It's been chopped for farmland. And a lot of the farmland was pretty worn out by this point. And because Vanderbilt was so interested in preserving and conserving the land, he worked to renovate this forest, essentially. So Olmsted started the process by bringing in foremen who could cull the existing forest. And this essentially meant cutting down the trees that were unhealthy and clearing space to replant new trees. And among the projects in the forest, he also added 300 acres of white pine. Yeah, and he covered the whole project, too, because he knew that this was pretty significant research in forestry, and it might set a new standard. And Vanderbilt was actually hoping to do just that. So Olmsted brought on Gifford Pinchot, who only left Biltmore to go on to head up the U.S. Forest Service. So that gives you a pretty good idea of how significant this project was. Um, and in 1914, some of the estate land was sold to make a national forest, which is why... You have those vistas today. It's still preserved. Right. 
In addition to the significant forest on Biltmore's estate, there was also a model farm that was a working farm. And some of the, the hands who lived there would raise Jersey cows and pedigree hogs. And Sarah had pointed out that in Vanderbilt's New York Times obituary, the writer noted that some of his prize hogs would sell for 500 to $800. And that's in 1913. Yeah. So some serious business. Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> but of of course, it's not all this farmland and forested land. There are these very formal planned gardens around the home, and that's what Olmsted really worked carefully on, along with um, Richard Morris Hunt. And they stuck to that French Renaissance theme of the home, which has these exterior staircases and the limestone and the turrets and it's it's very ornate and the gardens match that and we're not going to go over every garden again you can look at pictures and take your own tour but the approach is is kind of a significant part of it it's 3 miles long and as soon as you pull off the road you have just left everything else behind that's where your vision suddenly you can't see the outside buildings and everything like that. You're just on this little road going through the forest. And I think it's interesting, but Olmsted was almost trying to create a subtropical forest when he laid this out. He put in a lot of bamboo just to make these northern visitors, you know, these family members from New York and friends, feel warm and cozy here in Asheville, <laughs> which is not a... It's not a subtropical no, it's, place. No, it's cold. It's up in the mountains. But he figured out which plants could survive up there and live through the winter and put them in. In addition to the approach, some other significant gardens that you should note if and when you visit Biltmore uh, include the Italian garden, which features symmetrical pools and lawns and statues. And uh, Olmsted thought that this would be a place where the family would gather outdoors to play tennis and to converse, maybe to take their cocktails uh, another garden was the shrub garden, which is not too exciting to me. It's it's shrubs, but <laughs> 500 different species of them. Then the walled garden, which is where you can see a split between the uh, ideas of Vanderbilt and Olmsted. Olmsted thought an edible garden would be... Old-fashioned country ornamental garden almost. Right, but Vanderbilt wanted it to be more ornate and showy, so it has plenty of flowers in there too. Yeah, and then there's the conservatory, um, which, of course, is the nursery for all of the grounds. And it's a pretty interesting-looking building itself, too. Um, but, you know, you could you could spend ages, I think, just wandering around looking at all these different gardens, even after you've left the house. Despite the picturesque location and the attention and time that had been devoted to constructing a beautiful chateau. Uh, as we had mentioned earlier, a lot of Biltmore was left unfinished. And perhaps I was too harsh a critic earlier because I live in a two-bedroom condo and uh, one bedroom is fully functioning <laughs> and the other one has a bunch of stuff in it and is not on display for guests. So I can completely empathize with George Vanderbilt. He started this very ambitious 250-room project. It's understandable that some rooms would not be open to the public. However, when you leave places unfinished and you leave equipment around and there's debris and, and workers coming in and out of your home, it's bound to fall into disrepair. And that is exactly what happened to Biltmore. So as Sarah mentioned, he abruptly stopped work on the house 
Uh, he'd been investing about $250,000 per year on maintenance and construction, and he reduced his budget to $70,000. So that's a significant cut. He came up with a few cost-cutting solutions. One was leasing out the land for hunting. Another was selling off important pieces of art. Putting in fake pipes. Putting in fake pipes. That kind of thing. (laughs) But unfortunately, he couldn't figure out a good budgetary plan before he died. So Edith, his widow, was left to oversee the completion of the estate. And one of her solutions, as Sarah said, too, was to sell off the forest land, which contributed to Pisgah National Forest. But she was adamant about keeping 14,000 acres around the home. And this was to ensure the family's privacy. The Vanderbilts were pretty serious about their privacy, too, and there started to be rumors that Edith would eventually sell the house and turn it into some sort of hotel, and there you could stay in the Biltmore where the Vanderbilts slept. But Edith really loved the house, and even though she had plenty of other homes around the country, this one had a special place in her heart. After all, it's the house her husband had so fully devoted himself to. It's where she gave birth to her only child. Yeah, she'd come back every Christmas to give gifts to the Biltmore employees. It was important to her. And she was starting to get sort of more of a public role herself. She was uh, launching a career in North Carolina politics and society, and her daughter came of age and married an Englishman, John Francis Amherst Cecil, in 1924, the wedding was at Biltmore, so <laughs> that's a, another important life event for this family that took place there. But she really didn't want to have to sell it off or turn it into a hotel or no. something like that. She was looking for an alternative. Definitely. The Vanderbilts never gave up on Biltmore. And the Cecils actually began living at Biltmore, and they they took an apartment and a wing on the north end of the home, but the majority of the home stayed dark, and it was still in disrepair at this point because it was simply too big to be maintained at their budget. And I was chatting with Sarah earlier about this, and that just sounds like terrible conditions for newlyweds to be in a tiny apartment confined in a very dark home. Just kind of scary. Not really romantic. But John Cecil actually became very attached to Biltmore. And I think it spoke to his English gentleman's sensibilities. He liked being in the country. He liked hunting. He liked exploring the grounds. Whereas Cornelia, like her mother Edith, preferred life in the city. In 1930, this was really significant. Asheville had been pleading with the Vanderbilts to open up Biltmore for tourism to help offset some of the uh, the trouble that the country had been having from the Great Depression. They thought that if Asheville could have a, a spot for tourists to flock to, it really helped the city. So they agreed to do so. Just 5% of the house was available for public viewing. Tickets were $2, and that guaranteed that you could see some highlights in the home, like Napoleon's chess set and Cardinal Richelieu's Flemish tapestries, which the part I mentioned. Like. Mm-hmm. The massive library and great works of art by the likes of John Singer Sargent. But it didn't have that sort of warmth and electricity that the home had when George and Edith were installed there. Cornelia just didn't have that sense to her. She was not a natural hostess. Uh, but we think that maybe her guardedness was what created the mystery around the home and made it even more attractive to the tourists who wanted to see it. Because before the Cecils publicly opened it, it had been totally off limits. On Wednesday and Saturday afternoons, you could drive the grounds. And if a family was not at home, you could approach the facade. 
But if they were anywhere on property, you had to stay completely away. Yeah, I mean, even the queen offers a better deal than that for some of her homes. (laughs) (laughs) So then something pretty major happened in this whole house history. The Cecils divorced, and John stayed at the Biltmore because it... Just as we mentioned earlier, it appealed to him as an Englishman. And Cornelia was happier in the city, so that's where she went. But John's propriety, this Englishness about him, had a very influential effect on the whole tone of the house. He he sort of set the propriety. Right, and he would have grown up in a country where people toured historic homes and just let themselves in and took themselves on their own tours and rambled about. That's how things were done in England and even in some other European countries. And so that's how he thought that things should be done at Biltmore. And that was a mentality that was passed down to his son, William. So the house continues to be in pretty dismal state. And not only that, but Cornelia is taking pieces of furniture and art to furnish her apartments elsewhere in the country. Uh, so John's doing what he can to make it look presentable, which means polishing wood, oiling leather, replacing curtains. But there's just no money. And so of their two children, George and William, uh, George is given a hand in the dairy the Biltmore Dairy, which, as we mentioned, with those really high-priced hogs, is pretty profitable at the time. But William is strangely fascinated by the house, and he's a determined young man, and he really thinks that he can make a profit from Biltmore. No one believes that he can do so. And William Cecil even once said, I was made painfully aware that the future was drab, and while I might be a 50% stockholder of the company, the only thing of value, other than the contents of the house, was the dairy. So thus begins the age of William Cecil. Trying to make this house that he was going to inherit into a profitable business, something he wouldn't just lose or have to sell off. And he did it. By 1985, Biltmore Tourism and Employment contributed $350 million to the local economy of Asheville. Uh, So It worked. It worked. It took a long time and a lot of experimentation and a lot of different uh, efforts, some of which worked, some of which failed miserably. But um, before I go further into this, I just want to stop and recommend a book called Lady on the Hill by Howard E. Covington Jr., which is where I did most of my research for what I'm about to tell you. It's a, a fabulous book. William Amherst Vanderbilt Cecil is an interesting character. He's he's lovable as that stodgy old British type who wants everything done his way. But that's okay, because his way is really successful and his ideas are really good. And he had a couple of ideas about your responsibility when you live on a big estate. You have to preserve it. You have to improve it, and you have to leave it in improved condition than what it was when it was handed to you. And he's also famous for saying, I don't preserve Biltmore to make a profit. I make a profit to preserve Biltmore. That saying is plastered around Biltmore. Everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. So here's the history as to how he made Biltmore profitable. In the 1950s, this is when tourists in America are taking to the the highways in their cars. And Biltmore was in a competitive region in North Carolina. Uh, Cherokee had just been established. And you may be familiar with the uh, famous outdoor drama Under These Hills that launched around that era there. And then nearby Grandfather Mountain had just built a swinging bridge. So people were going to the Indian Reservation, and then they were going to see the mountains. But not all of them made it to this historic home. But those who did in this time could literally park their cars right outside 
Biltmore's front door. And there are pictures of this. And it's so strange because today, if you visited or you plan to visit, you know that you have to park way far away and you're shuttled in by bus to the yeah, front door. Or you just hike through this little path in the woods. Yes. it's. Uh, I mean, again, partly maintaining that majesty of the approach, I think. Keeping the station wagons out of the front <laughs> lawn. <laughs> Doesn't look as nice. <laughs> and what also helped bolster... Biltmore's reputation during this time is that it became a focal point of a major Hollywood movie that Sarah talked about in an earlier podcast. Yeah, The Swan with Grace Kelly and Alec Guinness, which was filmed in 1955, and it played an important role in our Princess Grace marriage wedding episode. Um, but that helped so much Immensely. with tourism. Tourism shot up 30% after people went out and saw this movie and saw this beautiful facade and these lovely grounds. And that's what bothered William Cecil, is that the Hollywood sparkle wasn't the reality. The house was still in shambles, except for what the tourists could see. It was structurally sound, but the carpets were threadbare, the flags in the banquet hall were falling apart, and no money had really been invested in it since 1915. So... Cecil was determined to make it profitable, to get something out of it. And he was somewhat of an outsider among a lot of the staff, which they're local people who have lived there most of their lives. He has this English accent. He was educated as at Harvard, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and he calls himself, quote, a New York banker corrupted by Washington. So he's going to he's going to stand out, stand out. And not only was he an outsider at Biltmore, but he was also an outsider in the realm of historic sites because he didn't approve of period costumes and petting zoos like the kind you would find in Colonial Williamsburg. And Biltmore wasn't considered to have the same historic and educational clout as a city like Charleston. It was entirely in its own category. And not to mention, after all those years, it was still privately owned. Yeah. So when Interstate 40 came through in the 1960s, more people were coming to Asheville than ever. And Cecil wanted to make sure that they definitely came by Biltmore. Um, his first few years in the house, Biltmore only had 3,000 visitors annually. And most of those visitors came during the summer months when they could tour the beautiful grounds and have picnics and that sort of thing. In the winter, a lot of times nobody would come at all, which is so strange when you think of Asheville's history as a winter tourist spot. It seems like that would be the number one season for them. But then consider stepping into a giant drafty home and you get an idea as to why it wasn't exactly a a welcoming site. Yeah. So he had a couple of strategies. One, he had to make cosmetic updates to the home. Two, he had to change the way the visitors were treated. He wanted them to be treated like guests, like his grandfather, George Vanderbilt, might have treated them, instead of them being paying tourists. And this is when we see his old-world model of country homes installed at Biltmore. Let people stroll and explore on their own. He's not going to put up do-not-touch signs. He's just going to block off areas very subtly with a velvet rope. That's how his grandfather would have wanted it. And when they were coming to Biltmore in the 1950s, they were still following this 1930s-era tour that had been set up when Cornelia and John Cecil first opened the home. So they just saw a couple of rooms downstairs and upstairs. And so he thought that he had to show more of the house in order to give people a reason to come back to Biltmore because a lot of people would come once, say they'd seen it, and then never return. That was bad business. So he didn't encourage guided tours, though. This wasn't um, 
This wasn't like touring some bunker or Civil War site where you have your reenactor who tells you everything you need to know. But there were still people on site to answer questions, you know, friendly docents around every corner. And he also put a stop to a lot of the old house myths that had been going along, like uh, Vanderbilt supposedly had Julius Caesar's bathtub installed. Not true. He he wanted the house to to stand on its own merits, not be some lie, essentially. Another thing he did that really increased tourism was to reconsider advertising. Uh, prior to Cecil taking over management at Biltmore, the advertising budget was $1,000 per year. By the 1960s, he'd increased that to $90,000. Uh, he ran a gardening column in the local paper uh, written by Biltmore gardeners from their point of view. He created this fantastic ad campaign about Alice, who was a curious visitor and the mountain queen. And these became very popular ads. And he also planned events to draw people year-round. Uh, in the warmer months, he had the Azalea Festival to combat the drop in tourism. And the, in the cold winter months, he had Christmas at Biltmore. By 1965, attendance was at 94,000, and previously it had hovered around 35,000. Yeah, and with the oil crisis in the 70s, he took it up another notch even to really bring in visitors. He finished the music room and the salon on the ground floor, and he hired North Carolina builders to do all the work so it was authentic and helping the local economy. And his rebuilding projects kind of threw off preservationists, though. It didn't always seem to fit the model they were used to. Right. Preservationists, by definition, like to preserve spaces in history as they were. But his philosophy always was this is how George Vanderbilt would have wanted it. He would have wanted a clean and opulent space to show his visitors. Not faded tapestries and something that looks like it's been sitting for decades. No, certainly not. So after about 20 years managing the home, he's able to make a substantial profit. Now it's about $3.5 million. And that's not just from ticket sales. He realized that uh, food is a valuable asset. He realized that he could make a significant amount of money from selling food and selling uh, souvenirs and that sort of thing. All this, all the stuff that tourists like. And in fact, he he once even said that um, tourists every twenty minutes stop to eat something, buy something, or use the bathroom. I think that plays into your stodgy Englishman description. <laughs> <laughs> and to that end, he served the the tourists' best interests. He built more public restrooms. He installed air conditioning in the home. He built more restaurants. Sold him ice cream. Sold him ice cream. Uh, and one of the things that he did that wasn't too popular at first was he opened a winery at Biltmore. This was his concept of Biltmore by the bottle. And he didn't even have a license to sell alcohol when he first started experimenting. So it was a doomed project from the start that took a long time to get off the ground. Yeah, I mean, you can't just jump into the wine business and expect a lot of success. But eventually he realized it, and eventually the winery turned a profit, too. Yeah, he hired a Frenchman, Philippe Jordan, to come in and oversee the project from scratch. And that was in 1978. And here's something to give you an idea of just how far Biltmore had come at this point. In 1983, he made the executive decision to construct a winery on the site where the dairy barn had once stood. Which was the old moneymaker. Exactly. Uh, so he builds this winery and it turns its first profit around 2004. So good job, Cecil. 
I would venture to say that the winery was Cecil's last big project. Uh, in 1995, Biltmore had its centennial celebration, and at the end of the celebration, he handed over the reins to his son, Bill. But he couldn't actually hand over the house. He couldn't actually hand over the house. You're right about that. This is uh, a sticky part of Biltmore's history. Uh, he owns the home. And he's been petitioning the government for several years for a little bit of help with that sticky inheritance tax issue because it's going to be a huge burden on his children when one day they inherit the home. So we don't know what will happen if the Biltmore will become a federal state historical site or... Something else. Kids will try to keep it in the family. And to that end, the family has been really proactive about branding the home. These days you can buy Biltmore wine, Biltmore brand towels, cookbooks, uh, food, ornaments. Uh, even outside the on-site retail shops, you can get Biltmore branded things. So there's a ton of money in this home and in the reputation that it has. And we can see in the years since Cecil has stepped down and let Bill manage the home, a couple of non-Cecil uh Things have been implemented. Petting zoo. Uh, there's a petting zoo. <laughs> there are a couple of period costumes now, and it's become more of a recreational destination. You can bicycle at Biltmore. You can go fishing. Uh, you can even take tours down the river on a little float. So, yeah, it's it's changed over the years. It's a different house than what George envisioned, yet remarkably similar. For sure, I would say more welcoming for the modern times. Definitely. It's nice to have the AC and heat. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And if you've never visited Biltmore, again, you should go. Well, I think that about wraps it up for our discussion on Biltmore. But if you've ever visited and you have favorite rooms or stories to tell us about, please email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. And we have an article about some other pretty interesting historical homes. Ten most expensive houses. I don't know. Does it have Biltmore on it? I'm not sure. I don't think Biltmore made the list. It's, again, in its own category entirely. Definitely. <laughs> but still, you should check it out. There's a lot of interesting and very expensive homes. You can find it by searching for 10 Most Expensive Homes on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. The HowStuffWorks.com iPhone app is coming soon. Get access to our content in a new way. Articles, videos, and more all on the go. Check out the latest podcasts and blog posts and see what we're saying on Facebook and Twitter. Coming soon to iTunes. iTunes.